Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 30, Hashtag Disaster, the value of social media in disaster. In this episode, we officially join the comment section in the discussion around social media use in disaster management. We'll be taking a critical look at what the value of this tool actually is, as well as where it might not be the right tool for the job. To this end, we'll be speaking with Ben Morgan, who is a principal with the Center for Crisis and Risk Communications, about his unique experiences leveraging social media during disasters, including during the 2013 Southern Alberta floods. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Social media is changing the way we communicate during disaster. Well, I can't tell you how many papers and conferences and talks I've been to where that phrase has been uttered. And while it's certainly true that the rise of social brought with it new platforms and opportunities, I'm not sure I've ever been able to put a finger on exactly why social media was thought to be such a game changer. Its use in emergency management has been hailed as a paradigm shift with all those uh, phrases included, but so many of the articles and webinars and even real-life success stories just seem to focus on how fast and wide-reaching social media is. And while being bigger, better, faster are signs of improvement, it's a long way from being a paradigm shift. Yeah, I agree. And I actually had a chance this June to do a bit of a deeper dive into the the true value and and limitations of social media during a crisis and risk communication workshop that was put on by the Center for Crisis and Risk Communication. Uh, I'll refer to that as the CCRC from now on. Actually, uh, I was lucky enough to get an interview with Ben Morgan, who's a principal at the CCRC, uh, as well as a member of IAM and Canada Task Force 2 and any number of disaster organizations. So, Without any further ado, I'll let Ben give you his take on the issue of social media use in disaster. So I'm here with Ben Morgan after uh, an amazing workshop with the Center for Crisis and Risk Communication. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us on this epic podcast. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into disaster management and crisis communications? Absolutely, Grayson. Thank you for having me. Uh, A little bit about my background. Actually, I started uh, my adult career as a a paramedic. Uh, During my time as a paramedic, I actually had a a, a very fortunate opportunity to serve as the services spokesperson, the public information officer, if you will, uh, where I was accountable for all of the media interviews and uh, reporting about crisis situations. Uh, I also engaged in public education programs and working with mayor and council and uh, all of the PR functions for for the paramedic service. I was promoted out of that position into a, a superintendent position, which would be like a sergeant for a police department. But I kept looking back at the PR gig thinking, man, I really love that. And so I, I was always drawn back to the public relations and communications uh, field. I decided uh, after a couple personal experiences to take the plunge and it was uh, very difficult as an adult learner to return to academic studies. But uh, Royal Roads University in in Victoria, an amazing institution to support professionals that had been in the workforce for for several years and to support them in either advancing or making their career change. So I did my master's in communications at Royal Roads. And uh, just as I was finishing that program, there was a very unique opportunity back at the city of Calgary 
in a newly created role called the Supervisor of Crisis Communications. And uh, I started in that role, that was in March of 2013, three months before, at the time, what would become Canada's largest and costliest natural disaster in history. So that event uh, basically ended up setting me up for this uh, new career specializing in crisis and risk communications. Uh, there was the 2013 flood that was followed by the 2014 snow timber event where we had uh, citywide uh, loss of power and uh, infrastructure issues. A 2015 uh, underground vault fire which resulted in the loss of power to uh, the west side of our downtown core. Uh, as a member of Canada Task Force 2, I was uh, a part of the response to Fort McMurray wildfires in 2016. Uh, to support the local communication efforts there in, in Fort McMurray. And now I, I teach, I'm associate faculty at Royal Roads, where I teach risk and crisis communications, and, uh, and at Mount Royal University, where I also teach crisis and risk communications. Literally some trial by fire, as well as being thrown in the deep end in terms of dealing with some of the costliest natural disasters in, in Canada's history. Uh, during this workshop, you spoke specifically about the role of social media and the evolving uh, necessity of, of social media during disaster response and in crisis communications. I'm wondering if you could cover for us how social media has changed this working environment and then some, maybe some pros and cons and tips of the trades. Well, it's changed the way we communicate day to day. I actually argue in, in many ways social media is the most anti-social uh, tool and medium that we have out there. In the early stages of social media and crisis management, it was a one-way push, typically a one-way push from an organization to their audience. But we're seeing that evolving now to there's a lot of value in data collecting or data mining or aggregating. Uh, content from social to help inform those that are accountable for mitigating the, the response or the disaster or the crisis. There's a lot that can be learned by uh, looking at what people are saying and, and what they're sharing. Uh, the flip side of that is you've heard the adage fake news and I don't think there's been one water event crisis that hasn't had a shark in the mall <laughs> or a shark in the stadium. Uh, so. So I, uh, the emergency management profession is working on how do we quickly and easily establish credibility from fake news versus what really is valuable information to responders. And if you look at the uh, 2014, sorry, 2017 uh, Houston floods, uh, citizens could not get through 911. So they were posting that they needed help on the social media platforms and reaching out to authorities. And so there is an expectation, a growing expectation, transforming the way in which we communicate with our citizens, uh, how we're giving information, and also how we're receiving information. Um, this is kind of like a, it's a paradigm, it's a paradigm shift where it's requiring organizations to supplement and in many cases replace traditional uh, types of crisis and risk communication strategies. So uh, during the Calgary floods as an example, whenever we would hold a media briefing, uh, the media would all be there and, and, and getting their, their footage and having their questions uh, answered by authorities. We made sure that we were recording that media briefing ourselves and then we would post that content raw on our channels. We would post those interviews on YouTube and we eventually evolved that post-flood 
to uh, making sure that we were broadcasting Facebook Live whenever we had a media briefing, crisis or not. Uh, even, a, even a good positive announcement from, a, from any organization, there's value in you having your own channel and your own message. So setting up Facebook Live. Um, so it really has shifted in the way that organizations are able to communicate to and with their stakeholders. I like what you said about uh, this becoming more of a two-way street. And, and uh, one of the quotes that really stood out to me from your presentation is that social media stimulates conversation. What sort of conversations get started during disaster and how does that help in communication? I think one of the most powerful conversations, when specifically as it relates, as it relates to disaster, is the news of evacuations. My parents, as an example, they... Well, my mom is pretty active on social. My father, let's say. My father, uh, he's not wired to a smartphone for social content. He checks in on Facebook every few days. But if I see content coming from an authority about an event or an evacuation order, that doesn't really impact me. I'm not in that community. But I can see that the evacuation zone is where my parents live. I'm on the phone and I'm, hey, dad, are you okay? Uh, I need you to get out of, you know, did you see that evacuation notice? Or at least direct him to where the information is being being posted. So it stimulates conversation in that way where it can actually uh, save lives. Uh, the other thing that I think it does is it, it'll stimulate conversation between an organization and their stakeholders. Uh, there's a lot, of, there can be a lot of value in uh, intelligence gathering and people offering suggestions and, and in many ways through very complex crisis events can actually help authorities prioritize what they should be looking at or looking to resolve first. Um, so during the 2014 Snowtember event as an example, the conversation that we were able to watch would have send, sent a clue or an indicator that although restoring power is very important, perhaps clearing debris and fallen trees off of this major roadway was a priority because it was blocking the fire station or blocking access for emergency services. So watching the conversation uh, and, and stimulating that conversation not only helps save lives through spreading of the information, but can can provide valuable information to those organizations that are trying to resolve the situation. So you mentioned data collection as a, a positive from social media. And I don't think that there's much disagreement that social media is an integral part of any crisis communication plan. What I do hear and, and the sense I get is that it's difficult to really weed out what the value of um, using social media is or what the benefits can be. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, actually, I. I, I'm very careful about the benefits of social. It's a very, very powerful tool, especially in crisis management. It is just a tool. It's a tool, however, that stakeholders, and that's a very broad statement, stakeholders expect your organization to have a presence on. Um, I tell a story, actually. Let me try it and see how this translates through, through podcast. But if you can imagine a car accident on a major expressway, a semi-truck has jackknifed and as it jackknifed, it picked up a car and drug a car underneath the trailer. 
and block, now it's blocking all the lanes of the expressway. If you can visualize that. The person in the car has been rendered, rendered unconscious. Okay, And as that collision has occurred, people have slammed on the brakes to avoid the collision. And now traffic is starting to back up behind the collision spot. You can see that happening. I'm, I'm in one of those cars that just mer- nearly missed the collision. I was 16 years as a paramedic. I get out of the car. I got to go help. As I'm walking to the person trapped and uh, unconscious, I yell to somebody, call 911. Tell them we've got one red patient. That person calls up 911. We need help. They'll exchange a bunch of critical information while I'm crawling into that vehicle to hold that patient's airway open. Somebody now sitting in the standstill of traffic maybe three cars back, maybe four cars back, pulls out their smartphone and tweets, stuck in traffic, hashtag nightmare commute, right? Like you can see that happening. So that tweet becomes a content about that event. It's a piece of content now about that event. That content is seen by many people. That content is translated because if I'm the local radio station, I monitor that hashtag And so now as the radio station, I'm going to broadcast that on the radio waves. Hey, folks, it looks like there's a vehicle accident on the expressway, right? And so that content starts to spread. Maybe it hits the noon TV broadcast news and it's like, hey, it looks like there's a car crash, right? That content is spreading and it's providing pretty good information to a large subset of people. To the folks that are stuck in traffic, that are feeling pissed that they're stuck in traffic again, maybe they hear that on the radio. That piece of content has now informed all of those that are impacted by this disruption, why they're being disrupted. To the cars that are currently moving towards that accident site on the expressway, if they hear that on the radio, that one piece of content has provided them choice. They can detour around, right? So we've, we've provided information and informed people why they're being impacted. That content hasn't provided people choice. But then to everybody else who's nowhere near, it just becomes noise. And so if you pull metrics from that one piece of content, that one initial tweet or Facebook post from that person sitting in traffic that says, hey, I'm stuck in traffic, hashtag nightmare commute, that piece of content has got really good metrics and it's done a really good job, right? It's provided information, it's provided choice, but I come back to think about the unconscious person stuck under the truck, that that social conversation, that piece of content really hasn't impacted them much. The most critical piece, the most critical communication piece in that scenario is the voice phone call from the person who called 911 to the operator who answered the call. So, and, and I just think of that when I think about social media and the power and how fast it spreads. But to those people that are directly impacted, the, the most critical information may not come from a tweet. In fact, during the Calgary 2013 floods, I went down, I went down to one of the communities in the flood and uh, walked through and talked to people. And... Uh, they weren't on their smartphones. They weren't watching TV. They weren't on their computers. They weren't listening to the radio. They were in rubber boots and waders 
covered in mud from their heads to their toe, trying to salvage whatever they could out of their homes. And so as a crisis communications professional, if I think that I was doing them justice by posting a, social, a piece of social media content that had really good metrics, then I'm failing them. They needed a handout, a piece of paper that told them where they could get supplies or what they should be looking for or, you know what I mean? That, that's the blessing and the curse of, of social. Who are you speaking to and how do you reach them? I really like that, that it's just another tool in the toolbox. Are there any other cautionary tales or particular strengths uh, with social media? Yeah, so the, the one, that, one that really comes to mind, Grayson, is um, during the Slave Lake fires in 2011. Uh, social really wasn't top of mind yet in 2011 from a, from a crisis management perspective. But during the Slave Lake fires, one of the first pieces of major infrastructure to burn in Slave Lake was the radio station tower. And that radio station tower was one of the community's primary uh, means of connecting and communicating with their citizens during a crisis. So what's that community left with? The answer is social media. It's a very powerful adjunct tool and a very powerful backup tool, if that's all you're left with. Some of the other benefits, you're able to quickly create and redistribute crisis, crisis and risk information. I can be in the middle of a crisis event and I can be on a site and I can take a picture with my smartphone and attach it right into a tweet and push it right from the scene. In many ways, I think social helps enhance transparency. Um, there's, a, there's a different expectation of community and your stakeholders group that push for that transparency. So I, I had mentioned during a media briefing, we would record all the raw content and post it on YouTube and then you know, push a tweet out with a link to that YouTube content. That enhances and demonstrates that we are being transparent. Social is very powerful when it comes to community support and community resilience in, inside, of a, inside of a disaster. In the Fort McMurray fires, we identified 24 pages that spoke specifically to Fort McMurray fire event. A Facebook page on Fort McMurray pets, a Facebook page for uh, Fort McMurray homing, I need a place to stay, uh, Fort McMurray for reconnecting, uh, a page for reconnecting loved ones. Uh, Kijiji played a critical role in people posting, hey, I got, uh, you know, I got two rooms that I can house people or I can, I can take six people into my house. You know, that's, that's the real power, I think. And, and as much as I say social is so not social, um, it really allows a platform and a place for community to go in the absence of supporting the actual event. I know in, in many crisis and disaster situations, governments or organizations still, I think, have a little bit of a reluctancy to leverage the power of volunteerism. Uh, social allows that organic. Uh, during the 2013 floods, YYC Helps was an organic, uh, driven, organized volunteer effort that saw community I, I could put a post, hashtag at YYC helps and say, I need help cleaning my basement. And before you knew it, I'd have eight random strangers there to help me clean out my basement. That's where I really feel the true power of social in crisis is. Um, there's, there's hidden benefits that, I, that are just becoming uh, to be put into practice. 
I don't know how many uh, organizations think about the paid aspects of social media uh, during crisis events. So an example might be if a community uh, having an issue with their water supply, uh, rather than messaging the entire city, go to Facebook and run a, run a Facebook ad and draw, draw a circle around the communities that you want that message delivered to. So if anybody lives in this, in this circle, uh, I want to plop a Facebook ad in front of them that says, boil your water, right? Uh, Google ads, Google AdWords. If, if it's a prolonged event, Spend some, spend some money and, and get your Google ad search so that when people are searching your event, the, the event that you're responsible or accountable for, that you're one of the top searches. And heck, they might even put a big box right there on the right-hand right side of your browser about the event, right? So making sure that people uh, are, are being served your information as opposed to having to go search for it. There are so many tools uh, around being visible on the internet or on social media, it's it's almost unacceptable now not to be using them or not to have that little bit of know-how, especially if that's your job. Um, I, I, I had never made this connection before, but the, the sort of calling for community help aspect speaks to the actual audience of, of, of social media. It's not the most vulnerable, it's not um, the people most impacted potentially, but the other people who do have their cell phones are the natural audience for volunteer campaigns and that sort of thing. So there's a really good, a really good match there. Well, and, and, and stretch that a little bit. And there is an opportunity uh, in any event to demonstrate your organization's ability to do the right thing and to respond. And if I think about the Calgary floods, our intended audience was Calgarians those directly impacted by the flood, those indirectly impacted by the flood, and those that could have been impacted by the flood. Nowhere in a, in, in a municipality's crisis communication plan do they, when we're working through identifying stakeholders, nowhere in there do we say uh, our audience is people in the US and, and uh, in Europe, but we were receiving phone calls from researchers internationally, uh, you know, phone call from Norway. Hi, we're doing research on the Calgary flood communications, and we've got all of your tweets and all of your posts, and we're you know we're publishing a book, and we you know wondered if we could have some pictures of your emergency operations center because we heard amazing how amazing it was. So there's the unintended audiences too that you know we need to be keep in the back of our minds that there's actually opportunity there to demonstrate your organization, whether you're a private company or a public company that you've handled something very well and to set the bar and actually set the challenge within that within the crisis communications profession. And I think the the 2013 floods in Calgary and the associated response especially with social media has held up a lot as a positive example of, of social media use and and one of the early examples of uh, self-organizing um, volunteer groups through social media. Yeah and, and that reminds me of a point Grayson it's you know I, I speak about it but that wasn't me it's a great team there's a whole nother question for organizations about resourcing we do some consultation and some support um, with with organizations and, and municipalities that their social media team Monday to Friday is one or half a person at most and if they find themselves in a prolonged crisis situation they're gonna have to figure out creatively how to staff that up. We don't all have luxuries of big communications teams. Uh, 
That's why planning is planning is so important. And part of your plan, consider relationships. Who can who can you call to help support you, and who understands your your business, your language, who understands how you operate, and who uh, who would you want standing beside you that you maybe don't stand beside on a daily basis? What are some practical tips or tools of the the trade that you might pass on to uh, someone who is trying to use social media during crisis? Well, I think first and foremost is write it into your plan and your your social media practice, not unlike any other process business operation, is going to change if you're responding to a crisis event. So making sure that not only you, the author of your plan, but making sure that your entire organization understands what the terms or the rules of engagement are if you're in crisis mode. It does not make sense, and, and one of the one, actually one of the challenges can be uh, an organization may have scheduled posts, scheduled days ahead of time, um, that if all of a sudden you're in an event and you forget to go in and cancel all of your scheduled mm. posts, now you find yourself, you're trying to protect your brand and reputation, something has happened, you're responding to it with very specific uh, messaging. You don't want a scheduled post that comes out that says, "Look how, look at this special we're advertising." Uh, you know, so we would put a moratorium, uh, and somebody's role was to go in and uh, make sure <laughs> that those were deleted or postponed. Right. Um, so, so yeah, write it into your plan and make sure you understand what that looks like, and it's going to look different. Uh, there's a Drexel University library that's available online where there are thousands of pre-written tweets for a myriad of disaster type related events. So drawing out and having messages pre-approved, pre-canned um, that are uh, blessed by the powers to be at, at your organization, uh, social, conversation is fast it's quick and if you're not ready to be a part of it then you're you're losing ground already you don't need to know all of the information but you at least need to say we're aware we know there's something happening we are the authoritative voice here's where we here's where you our audience can go to find uh, more information and this is when you can expect to hear from us next so just simple things like that, but write it into a plan. Make sure your organization understands your plan, that you're resourced adequately, and you're ready to go. I use the analogy of the fire, uh, you know, from my paramedic days, I use the analogy of the fire service. I don't know if you've ever seen a fire truck sitting in the fire hall, and in front of the door is the firefighter's boots and the bunker gear that purposefully put down so that all they need to do is step into the boots and pull the pants up. Pants are already around the boots. They have about 90 seconds from the time the bells ring in the hall to be, you know, down the pole or out on the floor, in the truck, pulling out the door. 90 seconds. They practice it every day. They're prepared. They're ready to go. So should your plan. Ben, thank you so much for joining us for this epic interview. I really enjoyed the Center for Crisis and Risk Communication workshop. Thank you so much uh, for all the work that you do. Um, and the work that you've done in the past during disaster. And thanks for what you're doing in, in uh, spreading the word and helping share 
stories and information with those that are as passionate about emergency management as we are. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a great interview. Uh, Grayson, you guys had a good conversation. Yeah. What I really liked about this was that it was a refreshingly critical look at the limitations of social media. So often we just hear all these wonderful things that social media can do and all the tips and tricks and tweaks and technical wonders of, of social media. But I don't know if I've heard a whole lot of critical talk about social media in the past. I mean, I think it's definitely at a societal level been a huge uh, change and there's, there's uh, been a lot of impact in disasters. But if you rewind 10 years ago and you look at uh, all the hype of social media, that it was going to be a complete game changer in terms of how we manage disasters, certainly it plays a role. But I'm just wondering if that, you know, that so-called paradigm shift, maybe the pendulum is swinging back towards the middle as we figure out realistically how can we incorporate this into our planning efforts and responses. So my key takeaways here was that exactly that social media is not necessarily the right tool for reaching those who are most impacted or even most vulnerable. What I did take away as the possible values of social media was the post-incident research. I think that's a really uh, deep area for future improvement is is going through all of the, the tweets and all of the postings and all of the activity spikes and areas in which the uh, the um, the largest uptake occurred and really getting those trends and understanding how communication happens in real time. I think there's huge opportunity there and there is beginning to be some research on the way in which social media is actually consumed and used instead of the way we just assume it's used. Yeah, and I think maybe the biggest change has not been necessarily for uh, traditional, you know, official responders as much as spontaneous volunteers. It allows a new networking tool uh, for people in a disaster and actual, you know, people affected. We know that people tend to get more social in general in disasters and uh, that a lot of people, you know, their first entry into social media might be during a disaster. People that uh, don't necessarily, you know, have a Facebook account or Twitter, uh, they, they create that during a disaster because they're looking for new ways to connect with those around them. Um, and it's very empowering in terms of uh, organic response and, and people to try to help their neighbors and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, you're right. If it's almost like a screening tool, if you're, if you're well enough that you've got, uh, you're able to put out a lot of tweets, well, that tells you a few things, you know, you're, you're able-bodied, you've got some sort of access to reliable power supply, you've got the time to, to, you know, put out tweets and, and posts and stuff like that. So, um, it's interesting. I think sometimes the the absence of social media might be a bigger concern when you're looking at uh, kind of geofencing a response. And uh, there's been some work looking at internet blackouts where you can map that and see the areas where you're getting the least tweets might be the hardest hit areas. Obviously, critical infrastructure damage or what have you. But uh, the lack of activity is sometimes more concerning. That was a key takeaway for me is understanding who your audience actually is for these social social media messages. It's the people on the periphery of the incident, not the people most impacted. And that's still important. You know, it provides this space for people to organize. And I also really liked he talked about the unintended audience. So those unknowable connections that can be made or those unknowable secondary uses of capacity during disaster, it opens up the door for spontaneous connections to be made and uh, capacities to be realized in unlikely circumstances. Why don't we talk a little bit about how we can actually operationalize social media and, and leverage it? 
Um, and, you know, I think in, in terms of the coal face of how we're actually going to use this, it's important to be savvy as emergency managers in actually being able to mine this data. So there's a lot of noise and we're looking for the signal. So how can we actually do that? Well, one of the tools out there is data visualization. And thankfully, there's a lot of free uh, uh, websites and, and soft software out there and apps that allow you to do that. So if you're just on your personal Twitter page and your account and you're trying to follow um you know, a hashtag and things that will give you a perspective. But what you really need is a bit more robust data visualization and mining. And uh, we'll post on our Twitter a few links to some sites that can help you do that. But one of them is Twitterfall, and it basically allows you to uh, to search either by a geographical area or by theme or by you can pick a selection of hashtags and actually build a customized um, kind of real time picture of what's happening around in an event, and then. As you are visualizing the tweets on this on this page, you can kind of um, increase and decrease the importance of various uh, hashtags as they're emerging. And it's really interesting on the topic of hashtags, how you actually pick them. I know you've got some experience, uh, Grayson, in, in trying to figure out which hashtag is best during a response. Um, it's a good question, and you have to be mindful that uh, this can kind of morph during the various phases of a, of a disaster. So the primary hashtag that uh, an event follows, uh, you should expect for it to change. But some research shows that almost uniformly, the beginning, the initial um, phases of a response, the most generic hashtags tend to, tend to be first. So hashtag emergency trends really high, hashtag disaster, those sort of things. And then as the event kind of takes form and those spontaneous emergent phenomenon are happening and people are networking, you'll start to see uh, uh, new kind of unique hashtags for that event. Um, so it's important to kind of keep an eye on on how that's evolving if you want to be effective. And, you know, as part of another tool of the trade, it is uh, pre-canning some of those hashtags and pre-canning some of those messages so that you're not reaching or at the, the whim of uh, emergent hashtags so much. And one site that uh, Ben mentioned during the interview was the Drexel University compendium or library of communication tools. So uh, if you look up Drexel University, uh, they have a several hundred page library of pre-written tweets that has insert hashtag here, insert disaster here. Uh, they're all tailored to different types of disasters. They're all um, focused at different uh, media channels and audiences. And it's a really good place to start if you're unfamiliar with crafting social media messages or if you're looking to expand your social media library. Oh, awesome. Yeah, keeping your character count uh, down can be a challenge and, <laughs> and trying not to be one of those people that does Twitter post one of nine. <laughs> um, one of the things you should be aware of is that the as hashtags evolve during response, that can cause its own issues. So um, Hurricane Florence, they had an example of uh, a misspelt hashtag and the intelligent software in Twitter tries to predict what hashtag you want to want to use by your first character so as people started putting in hashtag fl uh, the misspelt hashtag started trending higher than the official storm name so it created two parallel separate uh, kind of communication channels through twitter and it was confusing for some um, 
people trying to access reliable information about you know what was actually going on the the misspelt storm name was actually the more popular hashtag and it wasn't <laughs> until quite a bit after the event that it kind of self-corrected itself and the internet used spell check and and, and uh, it it switched over and there's a crossover point but if you're using the wrong hashtag um you know that can be that can be a challenge and and if you're uh, manning an official uh, government, uh, you know, Twitter account. What do you do? Do you put the incorrect hashtag in there and and just go with it because it's the most effective, or do you you know put the grammatically correct one or or both? Um, it, it's interesting. So those kind of real time decisions, uh, you know, are I don't know what the best answer is, but interesting to to think about. Autocorrect strikes again. Yep. <laughs> well, you took a look at a, a couple of uh, papers for us for our journal club for this episode. What did you find? Yeah, sure. So one of the articles I liked uh, is from earlier in this year. Uh, so 2019 by Meredith uh, Niles and colleagues published online. It's a free open access article in PLOS, and it's called Social Media Usage Patterns During Natural Hazards. So there's been a lot written on individual disasters where they take a, a, a discrete event and say, look at the social media usage uh, in this one event. But what these um, researchers did was look at uh, a period of five years and look at a variety of disasters. The focus was was in North America and looking at different types of natural hazards. And their question was, is social media used differently based on the type of disaster? So for example, uh, the use of Twitter during an earthquake versus a um, hurricane versus tor tornado, how do those things uh, uh, look in terms of the social media response? And what they found was there is a difference. So slow-moving disasters, as you might expect, have a higher preparatory phase, meaning there's more information about prepping for the disaster. Twitter is uh, and social media in general is effective in getting out preparedness messages, How who has uh, lumber for sale still, who has food, what stores, you know, even down to what pet stores still have pet food for people that want to stockpile and then uh, things like storm tracking you know updates when you can see a hurricane a few days out and it's it's got that big spaghetti plot of where it's going to uh, make um, landfall there's a lot of pre-disaster information uh, and you compare that to fast moving disasters like a tornado uh, there's a, a quite a different flavor in terms of twitter it's much more response focused and uh, a big spike during the actual event itself and uh, you know obviously not as much time to, to prepare for those things I think what, what was really interesting to me was, was a few things. One was uh, the article talked a little bit about behind the scenes of how Twitter works and how you actually get data from Twitter. And when we are viewing Twitter as individual users, we're getting a very small percentage of the actual sum tweets that are out there. And that's because Twitter is purposely trying to make uh, the, the tweets that we see as pertinent as possible to us, which I think for day to day is is great, and we want focused, you know, relevant tweets. I don't necessarily want the the Russian tweets coming up first in my searches. But if you're trying to use it as an environmental scan and using it to gain situational awareness, you need to be aware of that bias. And um, some of the the papers talk about a one percent threshold. So when you're looking through tweet, uh, Twitter as an average user, you're actually only seeing one percent of the available tweets, uh, and there's 
separate distribution channels, one of the ways that Twitter makes money is selling that other 99% to advertisers and people that want to have campaigns and, and do more social uh, media uh, mining um, and targeted advertisement. That is a separate distribution channel. So the free for use Twitter that we get, uh, it just gives us a very narrow uh, viewpoint. So the analogy is if you're navigating a big ocean, you know, and you're just looking through it one tiny people uh, for what your perspective is versus getting the 360 view. Uh, the other interesting thing was the role of social influencers. So this is important because it shows us how crisis communications, again, is different from normal communications. So if you go now to take a, you know, an MBA course on uh, marketing and how to use social media for business, there's going to be a lot of focus on trying to uh, in, you know, influence existing large networks. So if I'm launching a brand or an event in a city, I want to get those social influencers who have lots of followers who are well-connected in whatever area or demographic I'm targeting and try and access their networks. And, and that's how social media influencers make money is, you know, uh, is leveraging their networks. In a disaster, it's, it's interesting. The researchers found that social media influencers, the traditional ones, play a much smaller role. And it's actually... Um, small networks and tiny uh, Twitter users, like the they call the average Twitter user, that actually has the biggest impact. And there's kind of an emergent phenomenon where these small, previously unknown Twitter users will come and become, you know, for, for a few days, become like Twitter uh, super users. And even people who have traditionally what we'd consider lower credibility in terms of social media, brand new users with only two or three tweets, um, those t often are the most important and influential. So important to think about that. You're not using your typical distribution channels. And so the, the biggest one, the, the takeaway from the article is uh, slow moving storms uh, have the most preparation phase used to Twitter. So that's when you can expect the uh, Twitter sphere to be the most active. And then um, more, more spontaneous events are going to focus on the aftermath. So uh, things like, like floods and, and tornadoes and that sort of thing. You know, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the different phases of disaster. There's an article from 2014 entitled Social Media and Disasters, a Functional Framework for Social Media Use in Disaster Planning, Response, and Research. Uh, and this is by Houston et al. Uh, and they attempted to come up with a bit of a, a, a framework of how social media could be used pre-event, post-event, during the event. Uh, and some of the things they came up with are what you'd expect, uh, you know, preparedness information, disaster warnings, um, service receipts, and, and requests for assistance. And it is important to remember that, you know, you shouldn't just be turning on and off social media during the event. It's not a dark net. It, you, you do need that constant presence. And there's a lot that can be accomplished in terms of risk awareness and risk identification or risk communication before uh, an incident. And I think a, a lot of the analysis of um, uh, the post-incident analysis of social media use is going to help advise how you can better prepare for a disaster as well. One of the other uses or real values uh, that was identified in this paper was the fact that it gives a voice to the most vulnerable. Uh, we've discussed this in previous episodes that post-incident action reports often has have a very response-centric view and really only identify the impacts that are highly visible. Social media, I think, changes that. And at the beginning of the episode today, we asked the question, what is it about social media that is a paradigm shift? Because the big, bigger, better, faster just isn't it. And I think this is where 
the paradigm shift happens. It's a redistribution of, of power. So if, if knowledge is power, if, if information is really the scarcest uh, commodity during disaster, then it places the power back within the, the people. Uh, to the people who are impacted, who have the most up-to-date information, who are actually on on the scene, and I think, for me, that's really what the the paradigm shift is. That really is the the true value of social media. Great. Well, I think that the takeaways here are uh, we all need to be literate in social media, and we just need to understand some of the limitations and knowing when uh, what communication channel is is the most appropriate for the message we're trying to get out. Any other thoughts, Grayson? No, I think uh, I've got my work cut out for me to become a bit more Twitter literate <laughs> as time goes on. And we'll do our best to make that happen after this episode by posting all of our tools of the trade that we mentioned. That's right. And if you're not following us on Twitter, uh, please do. Or maybe this can be a, an excuse to start up a Twitter account if you don't have one. Just before we go, I, I want to mention a few of our sponsors. So this episode is brought to you in part by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which is happening October 10th at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel. If you're in town, you should definitely show up. Uh, the Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. Uh, this year, the focus is on what it takes to create a healthy workplace culture where everyone thrives. And it has speakers such as Lance Secretan, who's the author of The Bellwether Effect, a best-selling book that shows leaders how to replace morale-killing business practices with inspiring ones. If you're in the area, you should check it out or learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca. And this episode is also brought to you by Alberta Health Services. And they've provided a quick message, which we're going to play right now. We ask these children if they know when to go to emergency and when there are other options. If you got in a car accident or like having trouble breathing, yeah. I would go to emergency if I had a really bad hockey skate cut on the neck. They're there to treat people that are really sick or really hurt. If you have an emergency or if you're not sure, we're here to help. Know your options. Call HealthLink at 811 or visit ahs.ca slash options. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Ben Morgan for sharing his time and expertise with us on the topic of social media use in disasters. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca. Send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit the new improved website epicpodcast.ca, which now includes a handy disaster calendar with all of the uh, upcoming educational and conference events in Canada. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, 